Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, we learn of the promises that Christ gives us in prayer. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7 as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, Active, Consistent, and Fervent Prayer. Um, from the book of Romans, and here's some of the why and a little bit of uh, some of the thinking behind this. We've just come out of about eight months of studying through Romans 1 through 3, and it has been heavy stuff, has it not? This is deep, deep theology that is there, and I do want to tell you that there is application from that. Like, don't ever think that whenever we study the deep things of the Bible and who God is and the way he's made the world, don't ever think that that's not practical. Don't ever think that that's not relevant. There is practical application. But the application from a lot of passages from the Bible is not a specific, okay, now go do this thing. Here's a command of an action. A lot of times the application is see this, behold this, understand and believe. And in doing that, we will be transformed from the inside out. So like the day that we studied the majesty and supremacy of God, there's practical application there. And the application is see who your God is and it will have a transforming, sanctifying effect. It will make us better husbands, better wives, more faithful parents, more obedient Christians. It changes from the inside out. But we know that the Bible does also have a a lot to say in the kind of, here's a specific action, go do this. Here's instructions about how to do marriage, you know, and things along those kinds of lines. And it's healthy, the feed on all of it. We need all of it. So before we enter Romans 4 and enter a season of, once again, you know, thinking through deep aspects of the gospel wanted to spend uh, at least a brief period of time here looking at some go-do specific kinds of applications. So this morning and Lord willing, next Sunday, we're going to look at some instructions regarding prayer. Uh, Pastor Ben will preach uh, in the midst of this, and then I'm going to come back and kind of finish up the series with marital fulfillment, family flourishing, and singleness for the glory of God. So this is what's kind of coming up for the next season there and probably carry us uh, through most of the summer. But let's read this passage then, uh, Matthew 7, beginning in verse 7, and we're going to spend our time thinking through this today. So begin reading with me, and then we'll pray. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven Give what is good to those who ask him. Let's pray. Our sovereign God, Father, we're coming out of a week where our church family has known um, a great deal of difficulty. I'm so thankful that in your grace you've carried us through and, and Lord, you have protected from catastrophe. But Father, we, we come and we plead for grace Father, we ask for your mercy to be on all of us in specific kinds of difficulties and hardships. We ask for the grace of relief from difficulty, from chaos, oh God. But God, we know that in a bigger way, you're always teaching and always working good for us through these kinds of things. So we lay ourselves down before you and say, oh God, accomplish your purposes, teach us what we need to see, make us holy through trials and difficulties, but please, oh God, give us grace that you bring us to good. And God, now as we, your sons and daughters, come to your word to once again get fed. Uh, Father, we're hungry, we are 
desperately longing to hear from you, longing for truth that once again fills our soul with encouragement and strengthening. We, we know we also need convicting and challenged and, and these things, but God, please give us what we need to keep pressing on in this work of running the race. So Father, I pray, provide for us. Every single soul's individual need in this time, please meet it, oh God. Give me grace to preach and, and do um, um, a faithful job here to be useful and all of us, oh God, to receive. Please bless this time. We ask this through Christ. Amen. Charles Spurgeon was once asked how his ministry had seen the seemingly impossible kinds of fruit that he had. If you're not familiar with Charles Spurgeon, you, you do hear me talk about him once in a while. He's one of my heroes from history. God used him in some pretty incredible ways in England in the uh, kind of the end, uh, middle and end of the 19th century, so kind of the end of the 1800s there. And at the height of his ministry, more than 10,000 were gathering every single Lord's Day uh, to come hear him preach. And some of those Sundays, not even having enough seats and people would actually be turned away at the door, unable to come in. And at the same time, hundreds of church members would then unable to come and hear the preaching and having to read the sermon later in the week would then gather into the basement. But he was no hip megachurch pastor simply through smoke and mirrors leading them to their best life now. No, this is a man who preached deep theology, said hard things, called them to repentance day after day, preached faithfully the word and thousands upon thousands of souls were converted. This was in the day before megachurches were a thing. But not only was he incredibly fruitful in his pastoral ministry, he founded and ran a pastor's college, founded and, founded and ran orphanages, charitable organizations. The sheer number of organizations that he led seemed impossible. And yet not only did he just like found them and then they just like existed they were run with excellence. They bore the kinds of fruit and souls being saved in every single one of these that just seemed impossible. So he was often asked questions about how is this happening? How, how are you seeing this kind of fruit? To one group who asked him that question, he said, I'll show you. He led those folks who asked the question down into the basement of the church building and there gathered were hundreds of church members gathered together to pray even while he was preaching. Believers by the hundreds would gather together for different prayer meetings throughout the week, praying for different things. Every once in a while, just special gatherings were brought together just of believers to pray. And then even while he was preaching, there were people pleading for souls to be saved by the work of the word while this was happening. Spurgeon said, there's your answer. Spurgeon himself never shut up about prayer. Constantly, as you read his sermons, he was always calling the church to, to more effort, more earnestness given in the work of prayer. He once said, all hell is vanquished when the believer bows his knee in importunate prayer. The word importunate means like to plead and ask so much. You're, you're almost like crossing a line, like shut up, like would you stop already kind of thing, which Jesus shows actually honors God. Beloved brethren, let us pray. We cannot all argue, but we can all pray. We cannot all be leaders, but we can all be pleaders. We cannot all be mighty in rhetoric, but we can all be prevalent in prayer. Prayer links us with the eternal, the omnipotent, the infinite, and hence it is our chief resort. Jesus spent a considerable amount of time in, in his teaching instructing us to pray. He spent a great deal of time uh, correcting misunderstandings about prayer. Uh, there were times where he would model for us how to do it. That's part of what we're going to look at, Lord willing, next Sunday. 
But if you look and just, if you were to bring together all the passages of Jesus's teaching on prayer, a great deal of what he said was inspiring confidence in our praying so that we would not doubt it. Jesus didn't speak to, uh, you know, basically give some idea that there's a, a, a mystical kind of innate power to prayer that no matter who does it or what happens, like there's some sort of power in us that brings it about, but rather the confidence that as the sons and daughters of God call out to our father, the father who is Lord and supreme over the cosmos and who delights to do good for his people, that as we call out to him, we come in confidence that he hears, he cares, and he enjoys to give us what is good. Jesus never spoke to give some kind of idea of power and just thoughts and prayers, just like sort of like good vibes sending out into the cosmos. But rather we come to the God who is for us and not against us. And he wants us to have a confidence when we come to him. He calls us to regularly, consistently, fervently go to the father and ask so as we walk through uh, this section and looking at some of the, the points and principles on prayer that we're going to look at, I've got four total points planned right now. Uh, my hope is to cover two of them this morning. Lord willing, come back next Sunday, finish up as we go through this. But I'll show them to you as we go. So here is number one. Jesus gives prayer promises. In this passage and a handful of other passages, Jesus teaches to instill confidence that when we come to the Father, he hears, he heeds, and he enjoys to answer that we will receive. But you probably already know that there's an unfortunate interpretation of this passage and some others that oftentimes happens by Bible-believing Christians, dare I say, even Baptists. And it's an unfortunate interpretation that kind of goes like this. Reads this passage and goes, yeah, but that's not what he really means. Jesus says, ask and you will receive. Yeah, but it can't be, it can't be like that. And where, where some of this come, comes from is, it comes from a reaction against the terrible error of name it and claim it prosperity gospel trash. If you're not familiar when I throw that kind of language out there, let me tell you what it is. One of the major preachers in this movement is a false teacher by the name of Kenneth Hagin. I only say names when I believe that there is actual danger and warning to be said. This particular man claims that he prayed thousands and thousands of times and asked God to reveal himself to him and give him a word. And he claims that one day Jesus showed up and gave him a series of visions and new revelation from God. He claims that this revelation is as authoritative as scripture. Now, I, I don't tell you these things just because there's one crazy guy out there. You're always going to find that. But what there is, is there is a whole movement. There is a whole movement of this kind of thing. And it does once in a while creep its way even into sound Bible-believing churches. But I'm also telling you this because sometimes there's overreaction to this. But he claims that Jesus told him, that the Christian has been given authority from heaven. Catchy little title that he gave to his book in his video series, The Authority of the Believer. And what he says is this, God has given the Christian the authority that all the Christian must do is speak the words out loud, claim it by faith, and it is yours some of the other teachers in this movement, Joyce Meyer and Joel Olstein, both preach that the Christian has been given creative power like God. That when the Christian speaks the words just like Genesis 1, just like God at creation, he brings about, he brings into existence what he desires because God has given authority from heaven. To say this very practically, and to show you why I have some disgust for this, I've seen it firsthand. I've seen 
a person buying into this kind of thing come to someone with cancer and speak, be healed, I claim it in the name of Jesus, and then walk around and say, it's done. It's happened. All we got to do now is give thanks to God. What that kind of trash does is destroy faith when those folks see it doesn't happen like that, not to mention the incredible insult against the sovereignty of our God. And this kind of thing exists and deceives. By the way, oftentimes it is easier to see the clarity of truth against error. Okay, we see that in the Bible oftentimes. That is some sick, sick, twisted lies. Let me also tell you this, Christian. Some of our errors in history have come from overreactions to error. Sometimes in an effort to run away from error, we run too far and come to a place that is also unbiblical because of that kind of thing. And I submit to you that a lot of Christians' beliefs about prayer are unbiblical errors of overreaction in this regard. And many have come to read passages like this, where Jesus says, ask and you will receive, and then come to the conclusion, ask and you will not receive. It can't work like that. My friends, Jesus means precisely and literally what he says right here in this passage. Ask in faith. Seek in diligence, knock on the doors of heaven in fervent and earnest prayer, and you will receive. That's a true statement. But we don't take any verse of the Bible and rip it out of context from the rest of what the Bible says. But one of the things I want to show you is that there's, if you take one more thing that Jesus says in this very passage, right after he said those words, we'll understand the how of how this works. It's the statement of verse 11, and we can summarize it like this. God will only give you what is good for you. You take these two truths together and we understand this principle on prayer. Ask and you will receive. But... God is never going to give you something that would be harmful to you. He is committed to your good. So he will only give what is good. Those two truths together help us understand this passage that is right here. God promises to answer the request of his people, though the Bible does have much, much more to say about the right way to ask and asking in faith and the fervency of prayer, all of those kinds of things come into this. But we must understand that God only gives to us what is good. But don't think that that undoes the promise. <laughs> like, don't think that that statement of God's only going to give what's good. And you're like, okay, yeah, that's how the promise isn't really true. That's God's like wiggling out. That's his excuse to not actually give what we ask for. No, these things are true. God delights to answer the prayers of his people, but is committed to only doing what is good. And it is a reality. We who are so short-sighted oftentimes ask for things that we can't see would be to our harm, but God does. And God has not given us prayer for the purpose of asking for the things that are for our harm. Jesus constantly speaks in a way that is meant to give us confidence in that when we come to the Father, he delights to answer the prayers of his people. He delights to do this. So if that is the case, then why do so many why is it that there are so many who don't really believe that prayer does anything? And that is the case, by the way. I'm not implying that's the case here. When we talk about prayer, it's maybe kind of similar to how when we talk about personal evangelism, most everybody feels a little guilty, oftentimes, because we might hear a, a sermon on prayer or a sermon on personal evangelism, that kind of thing, and we, we kind of feel convicted of, oh, you know, I'm not doing it the way that I want to. But don't think that there's like this uh, implication of tone here that as we talk about prayer, that the idea is, ain't nobody doing this. Of course, that's not the case. It's possible to come to a place that honors God in our prayer life. Of course, it's not perfect, but to please God, just like we can please God in parenting. But you're not going to be perfect at parenting. We can come to a place that we honor God. But we do see that in general, it is oftentimes the case that there's not a lot of confidence that prayer actually does anything. 
So why is that the case? Well, let me bring up the reason that James does um, in the book of James. James chapter 4. A lot, of, a lot of times, Christians have tried prayer, maybe right whenever they became a Christian. They heard about, you need to pray. They maybe heard about some power of prayer. And they went then and tried some prayer. And they found that nothing really came about from it. The things that they were asking for didn't come about. And so they maybe came to the conclusion of, all right, I guess prayer is important. We ought to do it, but it doesn't really change anything. And this is where the book of James sums it up. If, if you're there in the book of James, if you wanted to look at the passage, he starts off early there talking about uh, quarrels and things amongst us. And then he gets into this section and he says this, you do not have because you do not ask. There's a truth. But then he follows it up with this as well. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So James shows there that there are two ways that we can get prayer wrong. Christian, I, I think the biggest way that we can get prayer wrong is just simply by not doing it. But the second biggest way that we can get it wrong is by asking for the wrong things, by asking for the wrong kinds of things. And the reason that we may ask for the wrong things is coming from a, a misunderstanding of what prayer is. Getting prayer wrong from the very start, getting its, its purpose wrong. So you know that there's a way of looking at the Christian life where there's this kind of idea that God is our divine butler. His goal in life is just to make sure that we arrive at happiness and fulfillment here. So whatever he can do to make sure that happens, he stands ready to answer our request about, about our kids getting into the right college so that they have the right career, really make a, really make a lot of money in a good paying career and have healthy children and financial security. He just really wants to make sure we all get fulfilled here. And friends, if we think that way, we'll pray that way. Many Christians have tried prayer but tried prayer thinking from that perspective, that God's big goal is my fulfillment here. And then whenever they saw that what they were asking for wasn't happening, they maybe came to the conclusion, prayer doesn't really work. I suppose it'll help calm you down when you're stressed, you know, kind of therapeutic, but it's not really like essential. Sometimes Christians can think of praying sort of like journaling. If you ever done journaling where you, you write down your thoughts from the day in a notebook or something, yeah, that kind of thing can be helpful. I do it once in a while. But if somebody, you know, sort of said, well, that's not really my personality. I don't like to do that kind of stuff. I'd say, yeah, well, it's not for everybody. Sometimes people think of prayer in that way. Eh, not really my personality. That's not really my thing. Sure, it could help calm you down when you're stressed, but not essential. But friends, what I want to tell you is Jesus calls every Christian to give great effort in this work right here. Romans 12, 12 calls us to be devoted to prayer. We're told to give great effort in prayer. The New Testament tells us to agonize in prayer. It calls us to actively pray, consistently pray, and fervently pray. So let's just understand this as, as we approach this. The call to regularly come to the Father is not just a personality thing. And while I believe some are more gifted in it than others, similar to evangelism, we are all called in this. There is the command to come to him. But friends, we got to get prayer right from the start. We've got to see the world rightly, see God rightly, see ourselves rightly. God's not the divine butler wanting to make sure you're fulfilled here. Christian, you are at war. You and I are living in enemy-occupied territory. You are a part of a kingdom that is the enemy of the current kingdom at power. Christian, your life's mission is to glorify God and be as useful, make as much impact for the kingdom of God in this brief life that we have. And God has given us prayer to be a radio, to call in aid that is needed, 
call for the supplies that are needed for the mission, calling in airstrikes whenever we ask God to intervene, when we ask God to give grace to missionaries, grace to believers living in North Korea. But if we're not careful, we can sometimes treat prayer like ringing the bell for the butler boy to come freshen up my lemonade. We gotta view it rightly. We're at war, not at rest. We have a mission, we're not after comfort. God did not give the gift of prayer to help make our life easier. God gave the gift of prayer to make us more useful. God gave the gift of prayer so that we would ask for the right kinds of things, engage in the work he's called us to and fulfill the purpose that we have been created. You are at war, Christian, and we have to view prayer rightly. There are weapons, there are supplies that we need for this task. Jesus tells us that God doesn't need our prayers. It's not like God is just always doing his own thing up there in heaven, not paying attention prayers like how we wake him up. It's not that God was um, unknowing. It's not that he didn't understand we were in need. And he's like, oh, sorry, I wasn't paying attention. I didn't know you needed this. No, Jesus says, your father knows what you need before you ask. Does that hurt your praying? It's meant to help our praying. But sometimes folks can kind of think things like, see, they try to like outsmart God, like get smarter than Jesus. Well, if God knows what we need before we even pray, then why? You get where I'm going with this? This is how he designed it. This is how he designed it. And let me say this. God's always doing a hundred things that we don't understand, but every once in a while, there are some things he shows us so that we can understand. God has designed this scenario that even though he knows what we need, he calls us to engage in this process where we humble ourselves, where we feel our desperation, where we come to him knowing he's the great giver and the sovereign and supreme one. I'm desperate. God, I need grace. I'm recognizing my weakness. I'm asking the strong one and God is glorified by this process. Guys, just think about it. What if God had not created prayer? What if God, and he could have, what if God had created this world, knew our needs and just decided every time we had a need or something would help us, he just sent it without us ever seeking. What would we understand? How would we view ourselves? if we did not see our weakness and desperation that we need him. The whole thing glorifies God. The whole thing is meant to teach us some things. God doesn't need our prayers. The same way that I didn't need Ruby's help to come help me shovel gravel last week. But why did I invite her? Teaching her some things. But it wouldn't have been okay if, you know, let's just pretend Ruby had this kind of intelligence. Oh, daddy, I see what you're doing. You just want to teach me some work ethic and some things like this. So I don't need to do it anymore. And then she just leaned on her shovel. I get the lesson, dad. I don't need to do it anymore. No, (laughs) work and the process of doing it teaches us. Don't ever think you can outsmart God. Don't ever think you can get smarter than Jesus and be like, okay, well, I get the point. I get what God's trying to teach us. So I don't need to pray anymore. I know that sounds crazy, Everything, every crazy belief has been believed by somebody in church history. There's even kind of been a reformed version of this, of I don't need to pray anymore because I understand it all now. You think you're smarter than Jesus. Bow your knees, go to the Father and ask. God has designed this. Friends, something else amazing to think about is this. There is grace that God is giving you every single day and you didn't ask for it. Fresh manna raining down from heaven in his provision and you and I didn't ask for it. God is just kind that there are many purposes, many gifts from God. He just loves us enough that even though we're not asking, he is giving to us. That is God's kindness. But he also shows this. There is a great deal of grace. There are a great deal of gifts that God is willing to give, but he's not going to until we ask, which means if we do not pray, we do not receive. 
James says, you do not have because you do not ask. Well, let's look at number two in our points here. So the first was Jesus gives prayer promises. The second one here is why we pray. You might also attach on there and maybe sometimes why we fail to pray. Well, let me, let me say this. If you are not right now actively praying with consistency and fervency, the tone that we have here is, is not, so, so don't misunderstand. My tone is not, you pathetic loser. I thought you loved Jesus. That's, that's not the tone here. It's not that kind of condemning kind of, I've sat under some prayer sermons that felt like that, you idiot. Okay, that's not the tone here. But the tone is rather, If you are not actively and consistently praying, I think there are some things from scripture that you fail to see. And once you see them, you will begin to feel your need of it. Prayer will come more naturally because it just starts to make more sense. So let me suggest two things that when we're new Christians, We don't see them. It maybe keeps us from praying. But then as we go, when we start to see them, the passion for praying is ignited. So here's the the first. It's letter A. We often fail to pray because we don't see how weak and desperate we actually are. We've been seeing in the book of Romans that a great deal of what we get wrong just in all of life is is failing to see rightly, failing to see God rightly, failing to see ourselves rightly, failing to see this world rightly. We've seen that we often see God too small and ourselves too big. We see God too weak and ourselves too strong. Friends, there are things that we think we can do. But the Bible shows that we're absolutely helpless in them. There are certain spiritual things that you might think of as like weights. And they are too heavy for us to lift them. But we think we are. We do this thing every single day. And so we assume that we are doing them on our own. When what the Bible shows is, yes, you and I are engaging in the activity. But you and I lack the spiritual strength to do it on our own and for any good to come out of it. What what the Bible kind of shows is it's sort of like if there is a, a, a bar on the ground and we squat down to deadlift this bar. Yes, you and I exert the energy, but it is a weight that is too heavy for us and that if God did not come in and give aid to us, we would not be able to complete it. Imagine laying down on a bench and you wanted to try to uh, increase your max bench. You lay down and you put on the weight that you know you can do. This is the maximum amount of weight that you can. But imagine then 50 more pounds were added on to that. And you go and you try to lift it. Yes, you're exerting a great amount of force. But if the spotter wasn't there, you ain't completing the lift. What God has done in his daily grace, and if you want to understand the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit better, What God does is there are spiritual exercises that we engage in every single day. But I mean things even as simple as continuing to believe. There are spiritual activities that we engage in every single day and God's not just going to lift it for us. Sometimes that's where we get prayer wrong. We just want God to like shoot me with lightning and take care of everything. When oftentimes the way that God wants to answer the prayers is through struggle and difficulty and sweat and strain. We're laying on the bench and we are to exert great force, but God comes and gives aid, gives grace for us to complete this thing. But some of the things that the Bible shows that we're not capable of doing, they're actually kind of surprising. In Romans 15, verses four and five, it says, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we may have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind together with one another according to Christ Jesus. Did you catch that part that God is the one who gives perseverance and encouragement? You wake up tomorrow morning and you still want to walk with Christ. What we oftentimes don't think about is the fact that as we're still excited about it, we're encouraged. We're willing to keep going. 
and we just kind of assume that's normal. We just kind of assume that that's natural and we just kind of assume that's coming from me. And did you know that 1 Peter 1.5 says that you, Christian, are going to reach heaven because you are protected by the power of God through faith. You wake up tomorrow morning and you still believe? You still trust Jesus? We just kind of assume I'm doing that. The Bible says you believe because God is supplying you with faith. From heaven, God is raining down fresh manna of new faith for the day. We sometimes just sort of think, I'm doing this. I'm exerting the strength. When what the Bible says is we are being kept because of the active ministry of God. If God stopped, if God withheld that manna tomorrow, you would wake up not trusting Christ. We are being helped on a daily basis. What the Bible shows is we are much weaker than we think we are. What the Bible shows us is we have a lot of incapabilities that we don't understand. We see the world and think, I'm strong enough to do this. When what we need to see is, yes, I can, but by the grace of God working through me. When God tells us that there is some active obedience, some command to go do, we are not to think, well, I'm, you know, I can't do it. I'm not even going to try. No, that's not the attitude. I need the grace of God, but he has promised aid. God promises grace to fulfill everything he has called us to fulfill. But there are greater and lesser amounts of his power that is poured out. Just kind of as a personal testimony, basically every pastor starts off knowing the right answers, knowing we ought to say things like, oh yeah, not I, but the grace of God through me, but really down in my heart, I'm like, I got this, I can preach. And one of the gracious gifts of God is he lets us fall on our face a bunch, fail a bunch until we're like a groveling worm going, God, I can't do anything. God's like, okay, now I'm ready to use you. Now you understand the grace you need, not completely, but you're at least closer there. And that, that's why there is an incredible amount of pleading and begging that happens before preachers stand up to preach. I've seen what I do in my strength. It's ugly. I need the grace of God. And in every single act of obedience, Christian, you and I need God's grace. And when we feel that more deeply, we ask for it more earnestly. We plead, we, we beg, we beg for God's grace. Do you remember Acts 1 when Jesus told the apostles, he said, I've given you the great commission. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, summarizing here. I've given you the great commission. This massive task that is going to take thousands of years to complete. This is to take up your life. This is to be what you engage in. But then do you remember that in Acts 1, Jesus said this, don't go do it yet. What do you mean, Jesus? You just told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples of all the nations. This is going to take thousands of years. And he says, don't start yet. Why? Because you would fail. Why would we fail? Remember what Jesus said. I have not yet given you my Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power to be my witnesses. Have you ever shared the gospel with anybody? Have you ever borne witness we think we have the strength to do that. When what scripture shows is it's a weight we could not lift. God in his grace is urging, stirring, whispering thoughts into our hearts of, of burden for the lost and desire for the gospel. God is helping us in the moment. Have you ever shared the gospel with some, somebody and it went well? Yeah, you did that but by God's grace working through you. Have you ever shared the gospel with somebody and they came to faith in Christ? Miracles were happening in the heavenly realm. God is at work in us. God's not gonna lift the weight for us, but God delights to work through us. And when we ask, when we fervently and add weight to our prayers, he delights and he enjoys giving us grace. When we see our weakness, we begin to see how much grace we need and then we begin to ask for that grace. But if we never pray, Christian, if, if you just rarely pray, sure, 
there is grace that God is going to give because God is not going to let even one of his children He's not going, to, uh, not going to let even one of his children fall away so that they are not brought to completion. He will give grace. But in the same way that you can be alive but have a broken back and sick and malnourished at the same time, we can be a Christian but living in such a state of sickness and malnourishment that we are largely unaffected and we will regret that. The more grace we ask for, the more grace we will receive. But before we'll do it, we need to recognize our weakness. Now here's letter B, the second thing. We often fail to pray because we fail to see how rich and beautiful the rewards of godliness will be. And so we fail to want them. Let me say that again. We often fail to pray because we fail to see how rich and beautiful the rewards of godliness will be. And so we fail to want them. See, another big secret to prayer is this. Typically, we only ask God for the things that we want. Let that sink in for just a second. You won't pray for holiness if you don't want holiness. You don't pray for patience if you don't want patience. So what do we pray for? Well, take a quick analysis. I want to ask you, Christian, take a quick analysis of the things that you pray for. What you'll find is we ask God for the things that matter to us. So for instance, if you looked at your prayer life and you saw that the only thing you ever prayed for is for Johnny to do well in his t-ball games, you're seeing some things of your heart. If you only prayed about your job or maybe there's something more that you want and that's all you ever prayed for, you're seeing some things about your heart. If you look at your praying and you see that all you ever pray for is protection on people you love and praying for sickness to be healed, you're seeing some things. Now, let me, let me clarify here. There is nothing evil about praying for protection and praying for people to be healed. We do that every single Wednesday night when the church gathers together to pray. But what I'm saying is this, as you analyze what you pray for, you're seeing the things that matter to you. And here's one of the things that scripture shows us. We are to have a transformation occur inside of us where we move from only wanting things of here and wanting the things of the kingdom of God. When our thoughts are completely focused on the earth, I want fulfillment now. I want comfort now. I want peace now. I want security now. When that's always what consumes us, then we'll always be praying for things that pertain to now. When what the Bible is always showing us is, is look farther than that. Philippians tells us, don't fix your minds on earth, fix your minds on Christ in heaven. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us that the secret to seeing all pain and suffering as light momentary affliction is that we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen. We look not at the temporary, but the things that are eternal. When we get the purpose of life right, when we begin to look at all things of my life has one purpose, I want the reward in heaven. I want to please my God. I want to glorify him. I want to fulfill this life and be useful for the kingdom of God. We begin to pray that way. By all means, Jesus even showed us in the model prayer that there is a time for praying for things of the earth. So don't take this like we're never going to do that. Not at all. But he does show us where our prayers are to be centered he does show us from what perspective we are to see and where our eyes are fixed. We don't fix our eyes to here, we fix our eyes to heaven. When you and I begin to see, everything here is going to burn, but what I have in the kingdom, that endures forever, that begins to transform all of our thinking. But then also in what we pray, we begin to want new things. When we want new things, we will pray for new things. When we're in our place of immaturity, in places of immaturity, we're always wanting convenience. We're always wanting comfort. We're always wanting things to be more secure and let's get rid of all pain and difficulty and these kinds of things. But when our eyes lift heavenward, 
we begin to think about pain differently. We begin to think about inconvenience differently. We say to ourselves, bit of inconvenience for great reward. This is worth it. Our prayers begin to change as our desires change. So we go back to the root and here is where it begins. Christian, you and I have to want godliness. We have to want the right things. We have to want the name of Christ to be magnified. We have to want the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. And when we want the things that actually matter, when our desires begin to match God's desires, then when we pray, we're now starting to ask for the things that God delights to give. There are many times we ask for things that we're not sure if God will give, and that's okay. The Bible even teaches us to pray some of those things. We pray for somebody to be healed. We don't know for sure if God will do that. But there's a whole list of things that when we pray, the Bible says, you're going to get it. Ask for wisdom. You're getting that if we pray in faith. Ask for patience. We always joke about it. You are getting patience by God's grace. He's teaching these things. There are many things that are guaranteed yeses. And when our eyes begin to see differently and we want differently, our desires match God's desires. We begin to pray in a way that God delights to answer and say yes. And then there comes this compounding, multiplying effect. As we begin to want the right things and then pray for the right things, and we start praying for things like maturity, start praying for things like holiness, Start praying for things like, God, give me understanding of your word and your truth and give me more desire for the gospel and give me more usefulness in service. As we begin to pray these kinds of things, God begins to give these kinds of things. You pray to know more of God's word, guess what? You're going to know more of God's word. And as we begin to then have these things come in our lives, we begin to mature. As we mature, our desires are being refined even more. We're asking more of the right things. And this multiplying effect of growth begins to happen as we're asking for the right things and God is giving the right things. But it begins with wanting, wanting godliness. So at the end here, let me give a bit of a brief go-do kind of application from today. If you look at the, your life, your activity in prayer, and you, you know, not pridefully, it's not prideful if you look at your prayer life and think, I think it's going well. That's a, that's a misunderstanding of humility and pride. It's not evil to see, I think it's going well. I think God is honored. If you see that in your life, then consider some of the ways to excel still more. That's a phrase from the Bible. Things are going well, don't stop. Excel still more. How can you add more weight? How can you add more clarity, more specificness to your prayer? How can you help others in this? But if you look at your life and you see, I'm not right now actively praying like I ought to. Let me encourage this. This is an activity that whenever I disciple somebody one-on-one, -on -one, this is usually one of the early exercises I ask them to do. I encourage you to come up with a list of the top 10 things you think you ought to pray for. Think through what are the top 10 or so things I ought to be praying for. And the reason why I think that's so helpful is as we've looked at all that we have, we start to see this is not just an exercise in how to pray. It's also about how I see the whole world. What are the things that ultimately matter? And so what are these things that I ought to be asking God every single day? It starts to fix our eyes on, well, what are the things that I'm ultimately to be living for? Prayer is connected to our view of God, our view of ourselves. Prayer is connected to our view of the purpose of life. So Christian, how do you plan to implement these things? You've heard it before to Fail to plan is to plan to fail. This is one of those that we have to find a way in our lives to carve out the time to engage in this. Because if we just say, I'll do it when I feel like it, we know how that goes. A lot of times like working out. Spurgeon said that he never prayed for more than five minutes at a time. But he also said that he never met, went more than five minutes without praying in some way all throughout the day as he walked around constantly knowing God was right next to him and within him every minute of the day, 
He would pray all throughout the day. So don't think that as we look at these kinds of things that the pastor's calling us like, I guess I better quit my job and get a part-time job so I can spend half my day praying. That's not necessarily, maybe not necessarily what the call here is, but it is a call to consistently, actively, and fervently pray. But let me also make this clear. We've just spent a lot of time talking about encouraging us to pray, but understand that the accumulation of your prayers is not like building points with God. It's not how you build up merit so that one day you'll earn heaven or Christian earn that super status. Both of those ideas are wrong. You will receive eternal life in one way, embracing the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Turn your heart and trust him. Not the accumulation of works or prayers that earns you grace with God, but also Christian. Don't ever think that just the checking off of boxes, that the accumulation of the number somehow gets me to that superpower level and then I'm a real Christian. It is about relationship. Prayer brings us near our God who is in heaven. Let's pray together. Oh Lord God, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you God for the daily grace you give that we haven't even asked for. Father, I want to pray that you'll keep teaching us how to pray. And and Lord, just the most practical application today, bring us that we will honor you more in this gift, this gift of your grace, this means of grace that you have given. I want to specifically ask for protection and grace on our church this week. Lord, as many are going through a season of difficulty, we ask for relief. We ask for you to lighten the load that is there. And Father, we know that if this would be good for us, we trust, we believe that you will. But we also know you know infinitely more than we do. And if these trials and even more are ultimately for our greatest good, then we submit to you, your will be done and not ours. But Lord, please give us the strength to endure through it. Grant us to remember you as we go through trials and not just to give in to the the sour and bitter attitudes that we're tempted to, oh God. Bless us, Lord, to look to you so that we endure through the difficulties. Help us, oh God, and give us your blessing today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, Active, Consistent, and Fervent Prayer. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.